Here's what it says. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, and sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we are looking at things in your word that are hard to hear sometimes. These are weighty subjects. So Lord, as as we do this, use your word to show us your truth, Father. Help us understand. Help us to to comprehend what you have revealed to us in your word so so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to see and understand your truth, to live in light of it this morning. Pray this in the name of Christ, amen. If you're curious how we select texts, Uh, For our sermons, there's a section in your bulletin that says, why do we do that? And this morning, we kind of give a little bit of insight into that. Um, We just go through books of the Bible. And so sometimes you're wondering, well, why is this subject coming up? Why is this subject coming up? It's just us going through the text. And that that has a lot of benefits. Uh, One of the benefits is it it does not enable us as pastors to skip over things that we don't want to deal with. We just have to go right in them whether we like it or not, which is, which is actually a wonderful thing because it's how God works through his word. I found this text to be encouraging to my soul this week and I pray it would be encouraging to yours as well. Well, we, we all know the importance of a good calendar, right? We all know the importance of planning, at least theoretically for some of us. I don't know if you're like me, planning is hard for me, planning out our days, our weeks, our months. Some of you guys are are five years out, right? Some of you love it, some of you are good at it, some of you, like me, struggle with it. I know it's necessary. I'm somewhere in the middle of these two. Just this type of planning, planning out the week, planning out the month, just, I don't know what it is, it just, just gives me anxiety. My wife, Sarah, knows if she really just wants to mess me up, as soon as I get home from the office, she can be, start, let's plan, let's plan something. Let's get dates going. Just kind of makes me feel like this. But I know it's good. 
But, but so, th- so think about Think about our calendars, how we plan things. All the little things that we put on there, important things. But, but, but when we pull back a little bit and, and think about the, the larger picture of life, what life is, kind of in, in the, the bigger scope, planning is, is kind of futile in a sense. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know that whether we'll be alive or dead in the next hour. You, you can plan out the next five years of your life and die tonight. Everything, everything can change in an instant. Suddenly, a car crash, a cancer diagnosis, the, the death of a loved one. Some of you know this more than others. So we can put things on our calendar, but, but the future is, is uncertain to us. But not everything about the future is uncertain. The famous German reformer Martin Luther once said this, There are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. What was he talking about? He was talking about what we heard read in Zephaniah. He was talking about what we heard read in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul shows us this really well in Acts 17. He says this to the, to the Athenian philosophers. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, speaking of Christ. There is a day that has been fixed by God in the future for judgment. This is what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. It's coming. Judgment is coming. Christ is returning. It's certain. It's fixed. And it is to this day that that Paul looks this morning in our text. He's going to teach us what to expect what it's going to look like, and how to live in the light of this coming day. But before we, we dive into that this morning, we need to kind of reorient our, our minds and our hearts. Right? And, and I, want to kind of, I want to help you do this by asking a question. When you heard the text from Zephaniah read this morning, or, or this text from Thessalonians, and there's these judgment themes, how, how did you feel? What, what, what was your reaction? What does your body do when we start talking about this judgment, this day of distress? Do you feel a little uncomfortable? Dustin mentioned that in his prayer. Did you kind of squirm a little bit in your seat? I mean, I, I'm the one who put that reading from Zephaniah into the order of service this morning, and even reading it, it still makes me squirm a bit. Did you think, I knew I should have slept in today, like, or you have that thought, I, I, I hate, I don't like talking about this kind of stuff. And these are all understandable reactions. I have them myself. But, but, but the question that I want to ask to kind of reorient our minds is why? Why do we react like this? 
why, why do we feel so uncomfortable about talking about God's judgment? I think the answer is, is pretty simple in the context of, of the history of the Christian church. And I, the answer is because no one's trying to kill us. We, we're comfortable. We're comfortable in this world, relatively. Our, our lives are pretty good. Some of us better than others, but we're relatively prosperous. And if we're honest... A lot of times, we don't really believe that most people are that bad anyway. But, but, but that's exactly the problem. You see, our, our, our prosperity, our health, our wealth has poisoned our ability to understand God's judgment in the Scriptures. And so, as a result, we, we, we don't long for God's justice as we should. But, but you see, the Thessalonians were not in this situation, nor really any of the early Christians. They were being persecuted for their faith. The Thessalonians were having their, their money taken for their faith. They were being executed, tormented by their neighbors, by the state. Early Christians were crucified for their faith were beheaded for their faith, like Paul. Many of them taken to the Colosseum, tied to stakes, and wild beasts ate them. Emperor Nero would light his garden by tying Christians to poles, covering them in pitch, and lighting them on fire. If that was your context, you would long for God's justice. And this is, this is why we, had, we struggle with that. So as, as we deal with this text, tr- let's just try to remember that. Let's try to be aware of how our context has kind of disabled us from longing for this justice. And, and, and maybe this morning as we, as we look at this, God will graciously help us to see that. See, the question that resounds throughout all of Scripture is, is not... The question that we usually have. If God is good, how can he judge the world, right? You can read a text like Zephaniah and think, well, if God's good, how can he do that? But the question that's, that's in the pages of the Bible is, if God is good, how can he be so patient? How can he let evil run rampant on the earth so long? How can he not judge now? Why is he, why is he waiting? What is he waiting for? Doesn't he know his people are suffering and dying? This is why Paul writes to the Thessalonians about the day of the Lord. It's it's not a judgment on them. It's an encouragement to them. This is meant to encourage them because they were suffering. So let's keep that in mind as, as as we go to this text this morning. Now last week we saw, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and we saw Paul answered their question about what's going to happen to believers on the day of the Lord. Now he's going to begin chapter 5 by explaining to us what's going to happen to unbelievers on the day of the Lord. And so we're going to break our text this morning down into two large sections. How the day of the Lord will come and then how do we live in light of that. How the day of the Lord will come. And, and as we examine that, 
That's going to break down into two sections. First, Paul's going to show us how unbelievers will experience the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. And here's what we're going to see, that for unbelievers, this day, this judgment will be essentially three things, unexpected, unwelcome, and inescapable. Look, look at verse 1. Paul, Paul writes, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Well, concerning what times and seasons? What's Paul talking about? Concerning the times and seasons of what he had just talked about in chapter 4. Concerning the return of Christ. He says, I don't need to tell you any more about when this is supposed to happen. Why? Well, he answers it in the next verse. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware. In other words, uh, they know completely. What, what do they know? That the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's unexpected. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. It's unwelcome. Labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. It's inescapable. See, the Thessalonians already fully knew, Paul says. They were fully aware that they fully didn't know when the day of the Lord was going to come because they're not supposed to. It's supposed to be unexpected. Nobody knows that day. Nobody knows when it will come except God himself. It's not for us to know. It will be unexpected. It's going to be a surprise. Not for any human to know. We're not supposed to look at all the numbers in the Bible and try to calculate out some date. I don't know if there's anything more clear in Scripture than that we are not supposed to know, that we can't know when Jesus is returning. And yet, for some reason, people keep trying. I mean, church history is just littered with examples of people, I finally figured it out. Jesus didn't even know. Jesus said in Matthew 24, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. But the Father only. The apostles didn't know. Acts chapter 1. One of the first things they asked Jesus when he's resurrected. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know. Times or seasons. Same phrase that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for us to know. But again, these guys just keep trying to figure it out. For some reason, humans just can't resist the temptation to try to figure out when Jesus is coming back. There's, there's many of these prophecies, and they're kind of funny to think of. One of the popes, Pope Sylvester, uh, way back in history, he predicted Jesus would return in 1000 AD. Right? It kind of makes sense. Okay, 1000, it's a millennium. Okay. He was wrong. There goes papal infallibility, I guess. John Wesley predicted Jesus would come back in 1836. He made some calculation about the millennium and this and that. He was wrong. Charles Taze Russell, the guy who founded Jehovah's Witnesses, predicted Christ return, would return in 1874. And this is my favorite move. When it doesn't happen, then a lot of these guys do. They say, well, it was a spiritual return, so you couldn't see it. He was wrong. Remember Y2K? Oh, Jesus is coming back. The year 2000, he didn't come back. Our computers didn't even crash, okay? That, that was the most anticlimactic day in history, wasn't it? That was such a, that was weird. 
Anyway. And the most famous, of course, Harold Campion. You guys remember this guy? He predicted Jesus was going to return May 21st, 2011. He convinced a bunch of people. It's actually really sad. He convinced a bunch of people to sell all their stuff and give him the money. That's usually how it works. Didn't happen. And of course, what did he do? I just miscalculated it. It's actually October 21st, but he was wrong then again. And of course, good old Harold didn't return any of the donations because, hey, that's what it was really about in the first place. All that to say, if you meet someone, you go to a church or a website or a YouTube channel or some theologian who claims to know and have calculated when Jesus is coming back, Hold your wallet closely and run away, okay? Jesus' coming will be unexpected. It will be unexpected. But it, but it will also be unwelcome for unbelievers. Now, Paul uses three images to communicate this to the Thessalonians. The first is, is a thief. He says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay, so this is a pretty understandable explanation. And thief is kind of an ancient word. Think more like home invader. So like someone breaking into your house in the middle of the night. I don't know if there's, that's pretty terrifying. This is, this is probably Jesus' most common way of talking about his return. Because it communicates this idea of unexpectedness so well. It's, it's all over the Gospels. His constant refrain, which is reflected in this text, is the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you do not expect. But the thief also, in this text, communicates this idea of unwelcomeness. Someone breaking into your home is not, is not welcome. It's not something you want to happen. Like a thief, this day that is coming is, is neither expected nor welcome for those who are not ready and prepared. Paul also gives this picture of, of a, an army and a stronghold or maybe like a, a city with, with walls. Again, he's drawing on a lot of Old Testament imagery here. It says when people are saying, peace and security, and sudden destruction will come upon them. The, the picture is of, of a city with walls so high that they're sure that no army could overtake them. We're finally safe. We've got security. He says it's, it's then, when it's unexpected, when you finally think you're safe, Sudden destruction will come upon them. Just when people think they're safe from God's judgment, they've cast off the fear of God, feel secure, the trumpet will sound, and God's judgment will be upon them. Upon those who have rejected Christ and his gospel. And worst of all, this is not just some metaphor, this is not just some physical destruction that Paul's talking about, it's an eternal destruction, it's, it's a separation from God's favorable presence. Paul puts it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, again, speaking of unbelievers, those who have rejected the gospel. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's a horrible, 
horrible thing. Terrifying. The day of the Lord will be unexpected and it will be unwelcome. He also gives this image of labor pains. Sudden destruction will come upon them as as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Now there's a lot going on in this image. In the Old Testament, the, the image of labor pains is used a lot for the coming judgment. Again, you kind of have to put yourself in a first century mindset of what labor would be like. They didn't have ultrasounds. They didn't know due dates. They didn't have any of these things. And a lot of women, unfortunately, died in childbirth. So the the image is just simply trying to communicate. Once those labor pains start, it's, it's unstoppable. It's here. And in reference here specifically, the judgment has come. It's inescapable. It's inevitable. Or my favorite word, it's inexorable. I just had to say that. It just, it just means inevitable. But look how he finishes verse 3. And they will not escape. They will not escape. In the Greek here, if, if you really want to, in the Greek language, if you really want to emphasize something, a negative statement, you do a double negative. Now, in English, that kind of cancels each other out, but in Greek, you, it's like a double down. That's what Paul does here. So, like, literally what he's saying is, they will not not escape. A good translation to emphasize this would be something like, they will certainly not escape. Paul is emphasizing here that, that, that once that day comes, it's It's, it's over. There's, there's no negotiation, there will be no delay, there will be no mercy for those outside of Christ Jesus. You know, we've all heard people say, well, you know what, don't worry about me. When I come face to face with God, he'll understand. I'll tell him then, and no. Paul says they will certainly not escape. God's final judgment of all sin and sinners upon the earth is coming. And once that day comes... There's no longer any hope for unbelievers. Paul's simply just telling the, verse, the, the, the Thessalonians what, what the Old Testament had said. The prophets talked about this day often. You heard it read in Zephaniah 1. But almost all the prophets talk about this. It's a, it's a day of destruction and devastation. A day when every deed will be judged, punished. A day of darkness and gloom. It is the day when the pride, the hubris of mankind will finally fall and be judged. Mankind's rebellion will be exposed for what it is and be crushed. Isaiah describes it this way in chapter 13. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will, not, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. 
Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. It's terrifying. Worldwide destruction and horror. Can you just imagine that for a second? Imagine the terror of knowing that you had pushed God aside your whole life. Convinced yourself, maybe he's not real. Convinced yourself, even if he is real, I don't want anything to do with him. Suddenly, in a moment, Christ is revealed from heaven. You ever have that experience, maybe when you were a kid, when, when you did something wrong, and you get that like heavy feeling of guilt? When you just, you just knew you were going to get caught, that, that, that feeling of dread, heaviness. As a kid, you think my life's over. You can kind of look back on it and laugh. But, but finally, when you confessed it, you were forgiven, probably punished, but, that, but you got that relief out in the open. It's not, it's not hidden anymore. It's that inner dread. I, I think that's what the day of judgment will feel like for many people, unfortunately. When Christ is revealed from heaven, heaven, Everyone who, the Bible says, had suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness will know and be exposed. They'll feel the full weight of their guilt. And the worst part, no relief. There will never be relief. Paul says, sudden destruction. Eternal destruction. It's an uncomfortable truth. Again, for us, not for the Thessalonians. So sometimes we, we shy away from these things. We, we apologize for God's judgment. We are embarrassed by God's judgment. Dustin prayed. Why do we do this? Because we've, we've allowed worldly thinking to invade our minds. We've allowed our love of the world to to invade our minds. I heard a comedian recently who was mocking God and mocking God's judgments. You know, saying really unoriginal stuff like, wow, the God of the Old Testament is worse than a jealous boyfriend. Oh, you don't want to worship me? Bam, you're dead. Okay, that's, that's a caricature. But that's what's out there in the culture. <laughs> the problem with this, first of all, is it's not just the Old Testament. We're not in the Old Testament right now, are we? The day of the Lord is the return of the Lord Jesus. It is Christ who brings God's judgment. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm not going to read it. It's the Lord Jesus who is revealed from heaven in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Revelation describes the day of the Lord as the wrath of the Lamb. So we can't get away with just thinking this is like that Old Testament God thing, and now we're in the New Testament, so we don't have to worry about this anymore. I think the New Testament is more vivid with God's judgment than the Old Testament. But, but 
But do you see the error in this type of thinking? This error in this, this sense of how could God judge? That seems so unfair. It's a complete misunderstanding of who God is and who we are. It is a demonstration of, of what they were talking about with pompousness and pride. God created us. He created us for a purpose. He didn't just create us so we could live happy lives. He created us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him and to find our happiness and satisfaction in Him and to reflect His image and His glory upon the whole face of the earth. He created us to rule over creation as as His vice regents. And yet, in our pride, we rejected Him. We've, we've done our best to throw off his authority. We've spat on his law, killed his son, shook our fist at the heavens and said, we will be king over ourselves, not you. Turned our backs on the author of life. What else is there but death? God's not unfair for condemning his enemies. The fact that the human race existed for five seconds after the fall is all of God's grace. All of God's judgments are good and just and righteous. It may be hard to see that now. One day we'll know completely. But this, this is the price. This is the price for rejecting Christ. This is the price for rejecting God's purpose for your life. The price for rejecting God's free offer of the gospel. For those who reject God's mercy found in Jesus, they will experience the full weight of God's justice. Unbelief ends in eternal destruction. It's, it's not fun dwelling on these things, but, but, if, but if we didn't talk about it, if I didn't tell you this, if I didn't preach to you what the Word of God says, not only what kind of pastor would I be, what kind of friend would I be, what kind of human would I be, this is the truth. This is the truth. The judgment is coming. Maybe tomorrow, maybe a thousand years from now, but it's coming. For those who reject God, the day of the Lord will be unexpected, it will be unwelcome, and it will be inescapable. But there is hope. There is hope. There's there's hope in that little word right there in verse 3, they, they. Because Paul's not talking about the Thessalonian believers. He's not talking about those who have embraced Christ by faith. See, for believers, the day of the Lord will be unexpected, but it will not be unwelcome. Look what he says in verse 4 and 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Do you see the hope? This day will surprise us. It will be unexpected. We don't know when it's going to happen. But it will not be unwelcome. Why will it not be unwelcome? It sounds pretty bad. Because we are the Lord's people. 
We are his people. So the day of the Lord is our day in that sense. That's why Paul says, you are children of the day. It's our restoration. It is the day of our final salvation. It is the day when we will be gathered to Jesus Christ. Look what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. It says that the Father has qualified you. You didn't qualify yourself. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You can see the same language. We're saints in light. Saints is a weird translation. The word is literally holy ones. Again, are you a saint? Are you a holy one because of all of your great qualifications? No. The Father has qualified you. What has he done? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is why The day of the Lord will not be unwelcome to us. When the day comes, we will not face wrath and judgment. We will be received, we will receive our inheritance, and we will be received by Christ himself. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not just true. Today, it will be true on that day. Prophets prophesied this this idea of redemption on the day of the Lord as well. See, the day of the Lord is, is depicted very vividly as a day of wrath, as a day of vengeance, as a day of destructions for God's enemies, and yet it's always tempered with this idea of restoration and rescue and glory for the people of the Lord. We read Zephaniah 1, but go home and read Zephaniah 3. And you'll see the beauty of the gospel there. Why my son's name is Zephaniah. Joel 2 shows this tension perfectly. Now listen to this. He, com- he perfectly puts both things out. The destruction and the horror and the restoration. Look what he says. This is God speaking through the prophet Joel. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And look what it says. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Those who have faith, those who call upon the name of the Lord will certainly escape his judgment, his wrath. Because the day of the Lord is the return of Messiah Jesus. It is the return of the King of Kings. It will be salvation for his people. Think of of it, a good illustration of this is, is, think of Robin Hood, okay? Now, I don't know what your preferred version is. I like the Kevin Costner one, okay? Um, even with his horrible British accent. So, so think of it like this. King Richard has gone off to the Crusades or whatever, and there's, depending on which version, it's King John, it's the Sheriff of Nottingham. They were put by King Richard there to take care of his kingdom while he's away, and what have they done? They've tried to take the kingdom for themselves. They want King Richard dead. And so when King Richard finally returns, it's a surprise, it's unexpected. It's not a good thing for his enemies, right? 
He's going to judge them. They're going to be judged as traitors. But for his people who have been faithful in the meantime, it's a huge relief. It's their salvation. King will remove his enemies and his people will dwell with him. That's a beautiful picture of Christ's return. It's this matter of status. Those in darkness, those in light. Those outside of Christ, those in Christ. Believers, unbelievers. For all, it's going to be unexpected. But whether it's unwelcome or welcome, whether it's good news or bad news, whether it's wrath or glory, depends on your status. Is your allegiance with the king or is it with the usurper? Is your faith in Christ or is it not? This is the day of the Lord. But Paul moves on from his description to exhortation. How are we to live in light of all of this? What are we to do in the meantime? Don't worry, the second half is not as long as the first. We, here's what we're supposed to do in the meantime. We are to live lives of hope-driven holiness. We are to live lives of hope-driven holiness. Look at verse 6 and 7. So then, okay, so in light of all these things, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Thanks, Paul. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. So we're to keep awake. The very appropriate command for daylight saving time. Amen? We're to keep awake and we're to be sober. Or you could say sober-minded might be more helpful. In other words, we must live with the thought of Christ's return always on our minds. We must have Christ in focus. We must live in readiness for him to return. We are to live in a constant state of, of watchfulness, of, of preparedness. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean you can never go to sleep again, okay? Paul's not being literal with the whole sleep thing. And he's not talking about literal drunkenness, although that is a sin. No, the, the, the stay awake, this sobriety is, is a command to readiness and to seriousness, it's, it's a moral readiness. It, it means this, knowing that Christ is coming back, knowing that the king is returning, you're living your life now in obedience to him, in faithfulness to the king, even though he's not here right now, so to speak, to kind of go back to the Robin Hood metaphor. It, it means you're seeking to conform your life to the scriptures. It means you're not waiting till that day to try and obey the king means you're ready to meet Jesus face-to-face at any moment. Jesus often uses these same words and, and metaphors. He says this in Matthew 24, Therefore, stay awake. Same thing. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You can see there, He parallels. These are the same things. Stay awake, be ready. Two words that mean the same thing. Be ready for the Son of Man to come. Be awake. To do this, to obey this command, we must live faithfully now. Serve Him now. We must live our lives in light of eternity, living in obedience to Christ now. So we are to stay awake. In other words, there's no such thing as spiritual napping 
We, 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 there's never a time where we can just relax our obedience to kind of indulge in a little bit of sin for now. You understand? We must always be fighting against sin. Always fighting to live in obedience to Christ with all the energy that he supplies us with. This is the sobriety is understanding the nature of this. It's like hitting the snooze button. Have you ever hit the snooze button? I'll just lay my head down for another five minutes. Right, or you turn your alarm off. Okay, I'm good. I'm just going just gonna to lay here for another five minutes. And then you wake up like an hour, two hours later. Okay, we can't live our Christian lives like that. We, we must never think, oh, just, let me just push pause on like obeying Jesus and just indulge a little bit in some sin. It's just a little bit. It won't hurt. I'll go back to obeying in, in a little bit. No, we must stay ready for Christ's return. One commentator put it like this, and I love this. Watchfulness, or the staying awake, does not mean idle waiting, but diligent use of our gifts in the service of Christ's kingdom. It's a wonderful summary. Diligent service, diligent use of our gifts in the service of Christ's kingdom. This is how we stay awake. This is what it means to be ready. And Paul says we must be ready and we must be sober, sober sober-minded. It's kind of another way of saying to be ready. But, but the, the, the sense here is this sobriety means that, that we understand the seriousness of the situation and we live accordingly. In other words, we understand that this, this life is, is not a time to play games. This isn't a scrimmage. This isn't a practice game. This is the real deal. Eternity is at stake. So we take our faith seriously. Peter uses both these words when he says that we need to stay awake and be sober because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. You, see, you can see them at work. We have to understand what's going on, understand the danger of these times, understand that Christ could come at any moment, understand that we are to live in obedience to him. So we live with a seriousness to our lives, which is not opposed to joy, by the way. So what drives this obedience, this, this wakefulness, this sobriety, this readiness? What fuels it? What propels us to live in holiness? Paul tells us, it's our hope in Christ. It's our hope in Christ. It's our identity in Christ as children of the day, Paul says. We live holy lives, pleasing to God, not because we're trying to earn our way into God's good favor, but because we have God's good favor in Christ by grace, through faith. Look at verse 8 through 10. Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Let that soak in for a moment. In light of all the judgment, destruction that we've talked about this morning, let, let that soak into your heart. God has not destined you for wrath, but for salvation in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is where our faith lies. So much so that Paul says we should wear this like 
like armor, like a helmet, like a breastplate. We should wear this hope, this love, this faith in Christ. Christian, God has no wrath for you. None. Why? Well, what is God's wrath? It's God's justice. God's wrath is an expression of God's justice on sin. His just and good outpouring, his righteous judgment on sin and sinners. Christian, Jesus took all of that on the cross in your place. The Bible tells us that, that Christ on the cross propitiated, he satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. He satisfied the demands of God's justice so that God could justify us and declare us not guilty. God's justice has been satisfied for you in Christ Jesus so that now, if your faith is in Christ, God says you are a holy one. You are one of my children. Jesus died for us. That's what Paul says here. That's why he says right here, we've been destined not for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. He died for us on the cross by his own blood. The blood of the very Son of God. He purchased us. This is how we know that God loves us. This is why John 3.16 says, it, this is how God loved the world. This is how he showed his love. Christ died in our place. Because of his blood, we are forgiven. Because of his resurrection, we too will be raised in glory and the newness of life. What we saw last week. See, Christ is king. Romans 8 tells us that we are his brothers and sisters now. Co-heirs with him. What Christ inherits when he comes back, we too will inherit. In Christ, we have eternal life. That's the opposite of eternal destruction. And Paul says here, so that whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, and whether we live or die, we will live with Christ forever. That is what fuels our obedience. That is what fuels, that, that is our hope. And this hope drives our, our, our pursuit of holiness, drives our pursuit of obedience to Christ. Not hoping that he doesn't get mad at us, but knowing his love for us. And so because we trust him, because we love him, because we know that he first loved us, because of all these things, we live and we serve him in the meantime until he comes. And now, Paul says, now that you've been edified by the hope of Christ, what does Paul say to do with it? Keep these glorious eternal truths to yourself? Just go home and be happy in your salvation? No, he says, therefore, encourage one another. Use these truths not for your own good, although they are that. 
Use them to encourage one another and build one another up. Verse 11, just as you are doing. So all these truths that we've just seen, the day of the Lord, the judgment of unbelievers, the fact that we're secure in Christ in that day, Paul says, take these truths, encourage one another, build one another up with them, remind each other of the gospel, remind each other that the day of the Lord is coming. Remind each other. This is what we're to be doing. This is, this is what the church is. This is why we gather every Sunday to hear from God's word, to sing songs of worship. This is why we have church membership. This is why we covenant together. This is the sphere in which we encourage one another and build one another up. Which again just tells us how much we need one another. I need your encouragement. You need my encouragement. We all need to be built up by one another. So, encourage one another. Take these truths that we've heard this morning. Do not hoard them to yourself. Spread them generously amongst the congregation. Share them with each other. And as we do that, we see in other places in Scripture, God is building by the power of His Spirit a holy temple for Himself. Wherever you are this morning, whether you're both believing in Christ or rejecting Him, you should be thinking like Martin Luther. There are only two days that matter. There should only be two days on your calendar. This day and that day. The Lord is coming. God has fixed this day on the calendar of the universe. So if your faith is not in Christ, this has been a warning to you from God's word. But the fact that you're here is God's mercy extended to you. You've heard God say, on that day there will be no escape. But until then, friend, there is escape and it's found only in Christ Jesus. Take it. Place your faith in Christ Jesus. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God. Turn from your sins and, and live. Find eternal life in Him. Your faith is in Christ. Paul's command is simple. Stay awake. Be sober-minded. Live your life with hope-driven holiness. And let us together serve and obey the king faithfully until he comes again. All the while relying on his grace and his mercy to sustain us. Take heart, brother. Take heart, sister. The king is coming. It's coming for our salvation. And when he does, we will forever dwell with him in glory. Amen? I want to just finish with, with the words from verse 23 in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to do that? You, me, no. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.